Welcome to the Daily Canon Podcast. Here to talk all things Arsenal is your host, Matthew Wade. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another Daily Canon Weekly Podcast. It's a new to 2022, hooray, podcast uh, full of suitably mixed emotions after, after the football yesterday where Arsenal lost in controversial circumstances <clears throat> to Manchester City at home. And joining me to talk about that and and also just the general state of play, given that it's a brand new year, is Paul Williams and Helen Trenton. How are you both? Very well, good. thank you, Matthew. Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're both well, given it's the start of the new year and the world's in a slightly crazy place. Uh, but let's hope that uh, everyone listening to this is also feeling relatively well in the grand scheme of things. Where do we want to start? There's uh, The Manchester City fixture alone has a million talking points. Uh, so we might as well start with that. We can kind of touch briefly on, on other things afterwards. But let's get it out of the way early. Let's deal with the controversies and the match official situation. And then we can have a nice relaxing chat about all the positive things we might be feeling about things. Uh, so and just give me your initial impressions generally, but also specifically about uh, the refereeing display and VAR and other things uh, as calmly as we can somehow muster between us. Uh, who wants to take that one first? Um, I I missed like the first five minutes of the game. So literally, um, as I turned the telly on, they were showing the replays of, of the Odegaard thing. And um, as is habitual, I was on a call with uh, my mates. And the first thing I heard Steve say was, I don't think they're going to overturn that. Um, I, th- I think they showed replay after replay, and I'm I'm not sure that any of the replays I saw were very conclusive in terms of giving us a penalty. Of course, we then subsequently got a replay that showed very clearly that Edison didn't get the ball. Um, I think the reason that it, the VAR told Stuart or didn't tell Stuart Outwell to go and look at it at, on the monitor was because there wasn't enough evidence shown to bring about that decision and I I have to say without the seeing the replay where it's very clear that Edison didn't get the ball um I was kind of okay with that to be honest I think that feeling <laughs> then um winds up I get punched in the face a little bit with this with the penalty that does get looked at because you think, well, why is he why is he being told to go and have a look at that one? And the reason he's been told to go and have a look at that one is because on the VAR, you can see that Granite Xhaka very clearly grabs Bernardo's shirt, even though Bernardo's already on the way down. There is clear enough evidence that referee should go and take a look. But I guess what I keep coming back to and where I get got to after the game, and I think you possibly even retweeted it, was at the end of the day, it was quite clear clear that Edison did catch Martin Odegaard's foot and not the ball. And what Stuart Atwell thought happened didn't happen because he gave a corner. And it wasn't a corner because Edison didn't take the ball. It was a penalty. Um, well, so, I, yeah, I mean, did Edison get the ball but go through Odegaard's foot to get it, I suppose, is the other question. Yeah. There's certainly angles that suggest that might be what happened. But I obviously, at the game, it was at the far end of the pitch. I couldn't see it at all. Right in real time, I just saw Edison come flying out and then Erdegaard punching the floor as if it was absolutely blatant. And why the hell hadn't it been given? And <laughs> Arsenal players surrounding the ref from minute one, 
um, which was quite nice to see for a change because if it's allowed, well, why the hell aren't we using it? But what that did mean was I didn't see any of the replays that were shown at the time. And my first viewing of it was obviously the Twitter snapshot of three seconds played on repeat where you clearly see Edison's foot go through Erdegaard into the path of the ball and everyone's going oh well, why did the ball change direction if Edison didn't get a touch well because Edison kicked Erdegaard's foot into the ball and I can only assume that for VAR not to look at that that particular angle must not have been available at the time which kind of begs the question why wasn't it available at the time because um, if you you know if you take like cricket they sit and wait for um, ball tracking to come on. You know, they go through the motions. They do the front foot, no ball. They do the, where did it pitch? They do the snicko, did it hit the bat? And then they go, right, and now we wait for ball tracking. You know, if the evidence isn't there and you think there's a very real chance it might be dodgy, surely you should get all the evidence before yeah. you're making the decision. Isn't it lovely that you can use the cricket in uh, terminology? And we all yeah, know apologies to any it. of the audience who don't come from cricket <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've raised a, a, a clear issue there, which is we've seen this time and again with VAR is quite apart from the inconsistency about how one trying determines what is a clear and obvious error. And uh, watching Peter Walton try and talk his way out of that one was like, it was like high level philosophy. <laughs> you really needed to kind of think about it for about for several hours to even work out what the F he was trying to say, um, because it just it didn't seem to meet any normal logical criteria. But there is an ongoing issue, and we've seen this a number of times, and it's resulted in Arsenal players getting red cards, for instance. The Eddie and Ketty one a couple of years back springs to mind. The, the referee who goes to look at the screen is shown one angle where everyone makes else... Makes decision what, instantly as well. Well, even if he doesn't... Sees make, the angle goes, right, I've made my mind up, without even being shown the other angle. Well, that's the thing, is even if they spend a fair amount of time there, they usually only get one angle. We've seen that a few times, or maybe two angles. But how can that be remotely apt when everyone else watching the match, whether even in the ground, if you've got a, a modern mobile phone, for instance, for Man City's penalty, you've got the big screen. We've all got multiple angles. So what is the point of having a video review system if the people making the video reviews have less access to information than everyone else watching the game? Particularly given, as we've all seen from the coverage, they can give you five different angles in like 15 seconds. It's, it's an utter farce that that's the case, quite apart from... Well, it's an incomplete picture for them, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's yeah. that they think that by showing them the best angle that they can make a clear and conclusive decision. But actually, without the context, it's a bit like the second penalty. There are angles where it looks really dodgy. You know, where it looks like Jacques has just cleaned him out. But then you see the 90 degree round angle and you can see the direction that Bernardo Silva runs at to literally run away from the ball into Granite Xhaka. And if you don't show that second angle, showing the movement of the player, which gives you the context as to why there was the contact, and you only show the one where there is the contact, well, of course, you're going to draw a different conclusion. Yeah. And quite apart from that, it's just the fact that if you're using any sort of external influence to make decision-making and you want it to be unambiguous, it's a bit like a jury sitting to a trial, but they're only allowed to hear 20% of the arguments of both <laughs> both sides. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. The course of the question is, is who's deciding what referee, what angle the referee who goes to screen gets to see? Who's making that decision? Because they have disproportionate power to influence the outcome of 
the referee's decision. And we've seen it before, as you know, also in, in games not involving Arsenal, where not not even the first one that the TV coverage is showing, but just one of them, the most either damning or the most dismissive, get usually the most damning because obviously now a referee's going to get asked to look at the screen if they've basically been told they've made a bulls up. Only the most damning is picked when there's like 10 different angles one could choose from. So who's making that decision? And and that is something which, uh, again, the forever lack of transparency within the uh, match officials group uh, means that we're all sitting here going, oh, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Is it? Is it? Well, I can only assume it is the VAR slash assistant VAR who makes that decision. Yeah, one would assume decision, so. Because they're ultimately the one presenting the case to the official. I think the bit that really, really winds me up is the inconsistency of it. Because I can kind of get the idea that there wasn't enough evidence or the evidence wasn't conclusive enough to look at the screen for Erdegaard's one to say it was a clear and obvious error. He definitely did, definitely, et cetera, et cetera. Even though there is one angle that obviously with hindsight we can say does show that, I can get on board with that if the same conclusion is arisen at with the Manchester City incident where quite clearly there are evidence angles that evidence Bernardo Silva initiating the contact you know but if you don't show if you if you only consider one angle in isolation for that incident and draw one conclusion but then consider the opposite one for the Arsenal penalty that's inconsistent it's unfair and actually it makes a bit of a mockery of the game really because it's it introduces a level of subjectivity that is just not acceptable yeah and I think that's um that's exactly it. The the VAR is almost fans may be expected, and it's it's not proven to be the case. But the VAR almost ha- should have like a god's eye view of the game that the referee can't have because the referee is just not capable of seeing everything. That feels to me like what fans wanted out of VAR. I think we've, in fairness, we've been told quite often that's not what VAR has been brought in to do. Um, you're right, Helen. It's the inconsistency is frankly maddening. I said to Joe this morning, I couldn't really get to sleep last night. I didn't. I was still awake at about two o'clock in the morning, and part of the reason was I was still wound up about the game. Which, given that it was a twelve thirty kickoff, I mean, if that game had kicked off at eight o'clock last night, well, I, I had to get home to and have a chat with. Literally, um, I walked the door, and Phil went, "What's wrong with you?" And I went. Did you not see the game, like the decisions, the injustice of it? He went, oh, right. Trust me, that is even more aggravating. Yeah, he said that just to wind you up, though. Oh, he hasn't changed his tune, though. He's been mocking me about it all flipping day to day as well. And what game was I watching? It was the end of... um, That was a dive and a half, wasn't it? Brentford. Yeah, I saw that just now. Oh, yeah, he plays for Villa and he goes down. Brentford player's got a handful of his shirt and he goes down a bit like Stephen Taylor when he handballs it on the line. If you yeah, the old know platoon the, the moment I'm talking about, where it hits him on the arm and he just like clutches at himself. Somewhere completely different. That's what Trezeguet does. The guy's got a handful of his shirt, exactly like Xhaka, exactly like all the pundits keep hanging their hat on why that was a penalty. And guess what? It wasn't a penalty. It wasn't reviewed and it didn't get overturned. So you tell me, where is the consistency? Yeah, I guess I came to the view. I mean, I was pissed off that the penalty got given, but I I would say that I think Granite Xhaka is stupid to grab his shirt in the penalty area. And I saw a few people saying on Twitter about shirt pulls from corners that are never given. But I think that battling for the ball at a corner is one thing, and then grabbing someone's shirt when they're running towards... Agreed. Agreed. But did the shirt grab make him go down, Paul? No, I don't think it did. But I think it did give 
the VAR something to look but that's at. That's the if point. That's, if he, no. if he I, I, I would agree. Yeah, but, if he'd given it on pitch and then the VAR had been like, oh, well, he does have his shirt. Okay, we'll let it stand. I would be kind of okay. I wouldn't be happy, but I'd be like, that's soft, but okay. But that's not what happened here. What happened is the VAR went, that's an absolutely god awful foul. I can't believe the ref hasn't given it. It needs to be overturned, yeah. which is basically the bar that has been set this season for penalties to be given. And that to me was an absolute travesty. It, it was, you could couldn't describe it as anything other than was, soft, it, in my opinion. It doesn't absolve Xhaka from grabbing the shirt. It doesn't absolve him from sticking out the leg and pulling it back. But to sit there and say that was clear and obvious enough an error that it needed to be overturned in the context of what VAR does, well, it was an absolute joke. I mean, is this the right time to mention that we have uh, history with both the VAR and the referee in question? And the referee actually was the VAR ref when Tomiyasu got stamped on at Everton and that wasn't deemed worthy of a I don't think it was even deemed worthy of a foul no but that was a that's a Um, classic example there where Paul where if he'd been sent off on the field you wouldn't expect it to be overturned but having not been sent off you could see that there was possibly possibly reasonable doubt about the intent of it enough not to red card him and again that comes back to the consistency well I think was it I think wrong enough to overturn well that's the issue we've got isn't it is because when vi was first implemented it was kind of the separate eye in the sky that referees were just basically following instructions from now because they don't want to undermine the referees to that degree and they want to try and make things flow whatever their bullshit reason that is the referee has to make such a cast iron uh inarguable error for var to be supposedly uh, willing to intervene, even though we've obviously seen that isn't done. So then you've got people not only trying to judge what the incident is, but also trying to judge how much of a mistake the referees made. So therefore, they're trying to second guess the referees' thinking. And that's the problem. There shouldn't be any guessing. Yeah. Apologies gonna... for segueing into another sport again. But I think it's important in the VAR context, right? Because other sports get it better. Well, yes. So if you look at like rugby, when there's a decision to make, you can hear the VAR or the TMO and the referee interacting, describing what they thought happened and making a decision based on that. Yeah. So if the ref says, I thought he got the ball first, then the VAR can say, well, I'm looking at the replay and he didn't get the ball first. That's a grounds for the ref didn't see what he thought he did. So it should be overturned. If the ref says, I thought it was a, you know, I thought he probably didn't get the ball first, but it wasn't enough to bring him down. Then the VAR can say, well, yeah, I think that's a reasonable interpretation of what I wonder if that's ultimately what's happened yesterday is the, the Erdegaard's penalty we didn't have that angle that everyone has since seen. So to give the penalty would have been guessing. Whereas with the second one, yes, Silver makes the most of it, but Xhaka clearly has pulled his shirt. So the re- when the referee sees that, he's going to give call the it penalty. rather than pulled, if I'm honest. It well, was pathetic. Well, I mean, he shouldn't have done it. And if that, he doesn't I mean, do it, if he doesn't but I think do it you the can penalty say... isn't given it. They both can be true. The player can be stupid and make a mistake and the referee can still be wrong about it because that's how I feel about Gabrielle as well. Stupid to make the challenge, referee still got it wrong for me. Well, just before we move on to the Gabrielle incident, I'm I'm going to throw in uh, something which from a rather more neutral voice because I think that's interesting because everyone knows where I stand on quite a lot of the match officials and uh, Paul is not wrong to point out (laughs) that both of these match officials have previous with Arsenal and also let's face it Stuart Atwell was 
kicked out of the Premier League as a referee for four or five years not so long ago because of his levels not being up to scratch. But but actually, from a more neutral perspective, there was a, an article written by Keith Hackett, who was the boss of the referees before Mike Riley. And uh, what he says, I think this is interesting, which is... Um, each weekend, the debate on the Premier League games doesn't sadly focus on the quality and skill sets of the players we are privileged to watch, but on refereeing decisions and the way in which video assistant referees operating. The Professional Game Match Officials Limited, PGMOL, don't know what has to be limited, that also makes some bend, is reasonable for the referees that operate, responsible for the referees that operate in the English Premier League along with the VARs. The laws of the game are responsibility of FIFA and the IFAB, uh, which is an organisation that's of no great interest in any other context. The PGMOL should therefore operate and apply the laws in accordance with the governing bodies along with VAR protocols. However, the PGMOL are failing to achieve a level of consistency of operations and its officials are confused around what is clear and obvious, the trigger point at which VAR is expected to intervene and advise the referees to view the monitor. In doing so, the referees afforded another view of the incident and a chance to reconsider his decision. Sadly, VAR operators who have been officiated a game the day before, who often have officiated a game the day before, are failing to achieve a balance between consistency and understanding as to when the referee may need their help. In the Arsenal versus Man City game, for example, the home team had every right to feel aggrieved when Edison brought down Martin Odegaard. Referee Stuart Atwell was unmoved, and at this point, VAR should have intervened and Atwell should have reviewed his decision on the pitch side monitor. It was a penalty kick, in my opinion, the goalkeeper playing the man first and then the ball. And this type of incident must in future come into the criteria of a clear and obvious error. And, and then it goes on to talk about the second incident. And like the first incident, the AR now intervened and at the reverse the decision having viewed the pitch side monitors. Why do managers, players and fans have to put up with this inconsistency? Why is nothing done and why don't we hear from the PGMOL? They are locked away at Stockley Park, leaving their referees to carry the can with their reputation for being the best referees in the world in tatters. Why doesn't the PGML recognise that in Michael Oliver and Anthony Taylor they have an operational benchmark for the remaining select group referees to achieve? And this is from a man who is not only a, was a referee for a very long time, but also used to run the referees and still is involved in uh, non-domestic referee decision-making in terms of the way things are approached. So I think we can safely say that quite apart from our own biases, the VAR official did not do his job properly, not for the first time in recent memory. People who are truly independent and are paid to do it for a living, not paid to appear on BT Sport and just every fucking time back up the match officials in the game, regardless of whether they've shat on the pitch or whatever. It's conclusive. It's, it's, it, we don't even have to worry about the biases of pundits. We've got someone here who's that was their job for a very long time and they're telling us it's wrong. I think that the, when you raised Peter Walton, I thought that was really interesting because Peter Walton is an example of everything that is wrong right now with the PGMOL. Yeah. Because he, his first instinct in every single situation is to say the referee got it right. It doesn't matter what happened, how uh, how questionable it is. His first instinct is always to say the ref. I think the referee got the decision right. And then when he watches it back, he's trying to look for specific things to justify it, yeah. rather than looking at it open mindedly, objectively, and saying, "Was it the right call? Yes, no." And you can see. I think I've only ever once heard him say that a decision was wrong. And even then, he was making all the excuses for why it was wrong. Yeah, I mean, hearing him talking on BT Sport was it wasn't even double think; it was triple think, triple. Speak. It was he was wrapping him up in so many knots. He was saying that the reason it was looked at for the Man City penalty was because the player dived. But if the player hadn't died, so that so there was a player diving made the official look at it. 
but it was a penalty, even though the player dived. And then you're kind of getting into, okay, so how much of a foul does it have to be to mean that it's still a foul when a player dives? And before you know it, you're going, you're not making any sense. As you say, you've instinctively decided to, to back the officials as you do every time. And then you're trying to find a way of constructing sentences that justify that standpoint. It, it's very much akin to listening to someone being wheeled out from the government to try and defend Boris Johnson's latest cock up. Uh, some no account, two bit nobody who's somehow landed a great job uh, trying to find a way to turn black into white in front of our very eyes. And it's just a bit embarrassing. <laughs> And it reflects, as you say, it reflects the broad, what appears to be the broader view. You know, we've seen this before time and time again, that any referees that don't play nicely with the boys club at the PGMOL stop being part of the PGMOL or they get demoted or they get bullied out like Klattenberg. And Klattenberg was not a perfect referee, but he was one of the better referees we had. But he was a dissenting voice as well as being a bit of a flash git. And he was he was expunged, <laughs> for, for want of a better way of putting it. And again, how can an organisation that has no external scrutiny operate when it's not prepared to take any internal dissent either? It's, it's a massive cultural issue within the PGMOL uh, who appear to be accountable to nobody, never have to explain anything to anybody. Occasionally you get Mike Riley sort of things that he said being reported, but, but they're again a total example of company line double think, double speak. And so this goes beyond an Arsenal, you know, Arsenal fans issue. This is like, well, what is going on? We, as fans, we, no matter what team you support, you're hoping that the luck of the, the officiating draw goes on your side. And as Arsenal fans, we know that there are other structural issues why we get less bites of the cherry than some of the others, particularly the fact that 75% that of all referees for the last 15 years have based, with, based within 50 to 60 miles of Mike Riley's office. <laughs> and strange, and there's only like apparently only two competent referees in, from the south half of England at any given time. But quite apart from that, it's just the fact that even beyond that, we have no idea what's going on and they don't explain anything. And it's just, uh, you know, ultimately, yes, they shouldn't be accountable to fans in, in, in terms of individual decisions. But ultimately, without the fans, there is no sport. They have no job. And their duty is to the sport and not to their own uh, involvement in it. And uh, so many of them are, are determined to try and make their stamp on the game, whether that's through in-game management, as they call it, which can go from anything to flashing cards like it's Christmas or to not booking anyone despite the fact it's turning into a bloodbath, or in terms of the Mike Dean effect, which a few of them seem to have, which is how can I make this about me? It's like, it's not fucking about you. You're, you are the footballing equivalent of the tax man. Your job is to know what the rules are and apply the rules. That's your job. No, so, so it's interesting, though, that you say that. So I officiate netball, again, different sport, um, but I officiate to quite a high level, which means that I'm exposed to a degree of coaching around officiating. Um, I, I guess the level I officiate at is probably equivalent to League One, League right. Two, for context. Um and, and I'm, I'm currently working towards my championship level one as well. So I'm exposed to a lot of input around um, that sort of coaching. And yes, your role is to apply the rules. But increasingly, there is a, a huge emphasis on the importance of your game management as part of your officiating capability. Now, that means it is your job to try and help the players. And this is the language you use, to help the players through the game. Okay? So it's to... Let them know when they're edging outside the bounds of what you deem acceptable. It's to try and 
use soft skills to manage their behavior and keep them within the 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 four lines of the pitch ultimately or the court in netball's case mm, mm. because every official will umpire or referee differently you know they have different views of certain things it's like we all know that anthony taylor has a very very high threshold before something becomes a foul and whilst i personally don't like that in the context of football refereeing i can appreciate that he does apply that fairly consistently for the most part and it's a game to game you will get different different styles of officiating and players do have to adapt slightly to learn where those boundaries are and your job as an official is to to coach them through the game almost in some respects i'm not talking like baby steps but, but small margins if they're teetering on the edge of things your goal is to give them little directions to help them come back and and keep the the game the entertainment the spectacle it is, as it is as close to 11 v 11 as you can. Mm. And the problem we're seeing is that referees now seem to see themselves as actor within the drama. So something my mentor always says to me is, if people don't see you, if they don't notice you, that means you are doing a good job. But unfortunately, there's too many times it seems to me, and Mike Dean is basically this epitomised and um, coagulated into a single person if the referee thinks that the show is about them and they want all the attention to be on them, that is uh, an example of where it's all gone completely wrong. And you could see it with the Gabrielle sending off, Stuart Atwell had decided basically before the challenge even came in that he was going to send him off. He didn't have to think about who it was. He knew straight away it was going to be a red. You, If you see it, he yeah, literally yeah. makes the challenge and within the space of about three seconds, he's blown his whistle, he's marched over, he's got the yellow card out, he's also got his red card out and he's already pointing him off the pitch. The other thing that they coach you about when you're officiating is, so in netball, you use a finger whistle, exactly the same as in in football refereeing. And the whole point of using a finger whistle compared to like one on a lanyard around your neck, for example, is it gives you the time to bring the whistle to your mouth before you make the decision. So there's no like impulsive, you thought it, oh, and then you suddenly think, oh, did I see that? Didn't I see that? It gives you that precious commodity of time to weigh up in your mind what you've seen and process it all. Mm. almost before you blow the whistle and it just struck me that in all the key moments that is absolutely not what Stuart Atwell and indeed the VAR as it happens but not doing they're not giving themselves the time the opportunities and indeed the angles to make the right decision let's not even get on to the Martinelli screen that Mar- that Stuart Atwell provided but yeah these are all just basic things yeah, that yeah. officials across the world learn are not being applied in frankly the most well-paid elite environment in sport you could possibly imagine. And that, to me, is just un- unforgivable. I'm going to turn to you in a second, Paul, and get your thoughts, because uh, I, I suspect there may be some additions you want to make. But what I just wanted to say on the subject was that, for me, the the, the VAR thing is a mess, and that's a, a mess with the way that VAR is applied. And there's clearly that there is we have match officials who are not sufficiently good at applying VAR, Um, And in other sports, they have specialised officials for video officiating, which is not something they do in the Premier League, which for me is a joke. Uh, But moving on to the point that Helen's moved on to, that was that's the thing I'm most upset about in a way. The VAR thing, that's a that's a, a technicality cock up, which shouldn't happen, but it it does happen all around the league. What I found most upsetting uh, about the game yesterday was the fact that the referee on the day lost control of the match and the the key incident point at which he lost control 
was when there was a replay on the big screen showing Man City's penalty, showing how much Bernardo Silva had dived. And then Granit Xhaka pointed to the screen when we went over to the referee to argue his case. A number of other players approached him on that basis, sort of saying, you know, we've just seen it. That was a dive. How can you give that? And then not as BT Sport thought uh, Gabriel got booked for scuffing up the spot. He got booked for uh, asking the referee why they hadn't looked at the other one in the first half. And according to uh, Stuvenberg, there were no swear words. Or is it Or is it when he's going back to the halfway line afterwards? In any case, whatever specifically triggered, and I'm using that word very specifically, the referee, from the, that <laughs> moment onwards, he decided if Gabriel crossed the line he, with anything, he was going off straight away. He also decided if you notice after that, Arsenal didn't get a decision for about 20 minutes after that of any sort, you know, whether it was a, 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 an obvious free kick. It was so stark, but also... That happened in the first half too, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, but became more extreme. And also he was so desperate to dish out cards to Arsenal players. Basically, he lost, he felt his authority was challenged. He lost authority and he tried to impose it with all the sophistication of a five-year-old and specifically didn't do what you're saying, and we all know that referees are instructed to do. He had no way of getting regaining control of the game without just flashing cards around. And, and of course, in a febrile atmosphere, the Emirates is quite... But that was fine as long as he did it consistently. No, it's not fine if he does it consistently, because what I mean by that is not just that he'd lost control of the, the sets of players, but he'd lost control of his own performance within the game. And that, for me, oh, he hasn't yeah. got the mentality or the mental strength to be able to officiate at this level. The atmosphere in the ground got heated. The players got heated. He lost control of his own performance. Actually unforgivable and makes him not fit for this level. The VAR thing, I've got some sympathy for him because he's a th- his colleague fucked him over and he was probably also feeling emotionally worried about that. Yeah, it's not his fault about the VAR because ultimately he's made the call on the pitch and you could argue, argue, I don't necessarily agree, but you could argue both decisions were plausibly correct or correct enough not to be overturned. But the VAR has then inconsistently applied. So like you say, he's been he's been stitched up royally by the VAR. But you can see, Gabriel talks to him when the penalty's given. City player bumps him into the ref and you can see the ref instantly is like, how dare you type atmosphere. Even though Gabriel did, well, didn't bump him himself, he was pushed. Then he says one thing, apparently not particularly aggressively or rudely, although take that with a pinch of salt on the way back. Apparently that's a card. And then he makes one challenge and the ref is all, you know, you could see it was premeditated. It come personal. Paul. Hello. Um, I think it's a real shame that Arsenal played so well yesterday and we've sat if and haven't moved past the incompetence <laughs> of the referee. Um, you know, as Steve said to me after the game yesterday, what we should take out of that Arsenal fans. And actually, I was at the gym earlier talking to someone who was also at the game. You know, I don't think we're quite back but we're nearly back. And if Arsenal can keep playing like they did yesterday, they're going to render referees irrelevant in quite short order. You know, we lost that game yesterday because of because of refereeing incompetence, yeah, but on little details where if you look at where we started the season and we got absolutely spanned up at Manchester City and it felt desperate, um, I felt, and, you know, Helen was at the game yesterday, she was part of it, when that game finished yesterday, although we'd lost, um, and did anyone actually think we were going to make it through? Yes, because they had no chances, Paul. Um, When that game finished, the Arsenal players and crowds 
we know what we put into that game yesterday. We know how good we were. We know how unfortunate we were not to have won that game. And I think if it's little details that we're losing, big games like that on, you know, the details will come. Um, Gabrielle, I think, to, to my mind, you know, people on the call yesterday were like, oh, that's a definite second yellow. The referee didn't have to give him it. Um, so I, I do kind of agree that I, there was a personal aspect to it. Like, like you said, Matthew, the next time Gabriel did something, he was going to go, I'm not actually sure he, what he could have done when he was turned like that. I mean, I don't remember seeing many replays of the incident afterwards. So I, as uh, Clive PAFC after the game, the referee could have spoken to him one more and you go, whatever. He chose not to do that because he'd lost control. But they're just details. And I think talking about the referee, you know, my uncle Stephen, you know this, Matthew, we talked about it a few weeks ago, when we got humped at Liverpool a few weeks ago and I got the embarrassing, we haven't made any improvements, this will happen every time we play against the big team. Well, we played against the best team in the country yesterday and we should have beaten them. We absolutely mullered them in that first half. And Martinelli, on another day, he would have had a hat-trick out of that game. He could easily have had a hat-trick. Um, and that's what I want to take out of it. You know, the performance of Kai Saka, Jonathan Liu wrote, wrote a brilliant piece in The Guardian yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no better feeling in sport at the moment than the feeling in a football stadium when Bukayo Saka gets on the ball. Um, Thomas Partey finally in central midfield playing like the £50 million midfielder that we bought last summer. A back line that, like you just said, Helen, Manchester City created nothing in the game. They were, gi- they were given a penalty and they score a really scruffy un-Manchester City goal three minutes into injury time and they, they nick it off us. I've been on record on this pod. I, I, I've had doubts about Arteta. I've had recent doubts about Arteta. But we can see now where this team might be headed. And I think that's so exciting. And if Arsenal can play like this for at least some of the rest of the season, please <laughs> let's do it at Tottenham yeah, in a few yeah. weeks. Um, I, the frustration I have, uh, stupid, because I think even I said I said at halftime, yeah, one nil, it could be two, it should be two. Um, you know, you're always liable, particularly when you're playing against the best team in the country, for something like what happened to happen. Um, but I was looking at the league table, thinking, God, if we win this, we're right on Chelsea's backside. We're actually possibly looking at finishing in the top three, right? Yeah. And and that that might sound mental. It would have sounded mental two months ago, but I think it's. I'm not going to say I think we're going to do it, but it's definitely an achievable goal, never mind top four. And it's also trajectory, isn't it? It's looking ahead to next season and thinking, well, the the improvements we've made this season have been vast, even over a short space of time. And if we can continue even a slightly flatter trajectory, then yes, we will be challenging top three, top two next year. And, you know, from where we were, I thought there was a really interesting interview with Per Mertesacker this week. I think it was this week. If, if not, I read it this week um, where he was saying, you know, initially when we were trying to get back to the top, we went through the route that obviously Manchester United have continuously demonstrated doesn't necessarily work, where you spend big money on big players. They don't integrate properly. And then all you've ended up doing is blowing a load of money and you're back where you were to start with when they, you know, things don't turn out how you want and people keep leaving. Whereas they've gone back to basics, they've gone back to building that culture where kids come through the academy, they buy young, they buy talented, 
and they buy people who will buy into the culture and who are ready for the project. Um, and I've had my doubts personally about people at Erdegaard, as you'll know, because I do still think he's tad one-footed, which ultimately is why we ended up with the, the penalty challenge rather than a shot on goal in the first place. Um, but he's a classic example of where we've said, no, do you know what? We're not going to go for someone more experienced you know, but potentially more baggage. We're going to go for someone young, someone with a point to prove and bring them into our environment. And I think what you're seeing now is that paying dividends. What we've got to do now is what we didn't do when we had the Arsene Wenger crop of exciting young talent is we've got to kick on with that. We've got to add the quality where we need it and not end up seeing players like Saka, like Smithrow, like Martinelli doing a Fabregas, doing a Matt Nasri and leaving because we haven't invested to give them the platform to go to the next level at our club. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I'm talking about Saka with the, the guy in the gym earlier, and I think, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, you've been looking at someone like Saka who was having a really good season when everybody else around him wasn't really showing up and thinking, well, if this carries on for much longer, yeah, he's been at Arsenal since he was a kid. He's going to get fed up. Whereas now, like you say, the trajectory is has changed. And there's there's a reason for someone like Saka to stay. There's a reason for Smith Road to stay. Um <laughs> I, I I I I just came out of that game. Yeah, I was massively disappointed with the way that it finished. But you know, to play the the team that are likely going to win the league this season and restrict them to two shots in the game and one of them being a penalty or two shots on target, I should say, um, when you've been down to 10 men for most of the second half is... I said to my dad before the game, <laughs> well, I'd sign really... for that. Yeah. I'd sign for losing if we didn't lose badly and it meant our momentum well, continued. You know, it's really funny because um, we talking to this guy, Dan, in the gym, we're like, well, it was a moral victory, really. It feels, like, it feels a bit like being in Arsene Wenger 2008 territory <laughs> again. But, but it's true, you know, no, I... Um, I, I got a message from Uncle Stephen after the game, which basically just said, Happy New Year. Uh, that was it. There was no, oh, we were unlucky or whatever. It's like he's determined to be miserable about Arsenal this season, whatever happens. But actually, it, yeah, it's a real shame. And like I keep saying it, I, unfortunately, he's ruining Arsenal for um, his youngest. Um, but I'll try and redress the difference. <laughs> um, but there is something happening at Arsenal. There's something brewing. And, you know, what I hope is that, you know, the disappointment from yesterday isn't something that we let fester. Let's use that sense of injustice and, like I say, try and make referees irrelevant. I mean, I know it's difficult when they miss really obvious things, but um, I don't want to come on this podcast every week and talk about referees because I don't think it's what people want to listen to, um, particularly when we've got such an exciting um, exciting team. And on that note, my, my friend Steve, he had a question for us, all, which was, how excited are you for the future? Well, what I was going to say is, uh, I think it's an extremely exciting time and, and I'm feeling quite smug because I've always been like, no, Arteta's got something, you know, let's stick with him. Let's see what it's like when he's bought some of his own players rather than still trying to make the use of people that both Arsene Wenger and Unai Emery were trying to sell. <laughs> um and uh, the difference is clear to see. It's also, and we'll touch on this very briefly uh, at the end, um, it's also illustrative that, uh, that the Lacazette, even without doing very much specifically as an individual, does seem to oil the machine a bit better. Now our previous captain, a very recent captain, is uh, persona non grata. No doubt that will run and run. Um, but 
it's extremely positive. And the analogy with, with the Wenger crop of, say, 2006 to 2012, 13, is, is, is a very clear one. Um, and, and as you've already ha- outlined it, it also clearly lo- outlines the path of how to proceed, as in, yes, that's great. Now do the thing that you didn't do before. But it's extremely exciting because... All right, Man City were tired and Pep was doing his usual, oh no, the opposition played well against us, I must find excuses and whinge. Um, But we made them look very, very ordinary until match officials intervened, which is again a throwback to uh, those peak period of those very young Arsene Wenger teams in in the late 2000s, where it literally was just an inability to apply the rules that stopped us uh, achieving more than we did. Well, um, and also a savvy of the opposition, yeah. a savvy of the opposition to use the rules and twist the refs to their favour. Because I, I definitely feel like we've talked a lot about refs today. Having said that, it's ultimately the, it's our naivety that has allowed refs to make decisions. And I think I said earlier this season, there will be games that we'll face this year where because we have a young side, and I'm not talking about Granite Xhaka, obviously, but we have young players and they will make decisions or they will have inconsistencies because of that. And we have to take that as part of the, the growing pains almost. You know, that experience that Gabriel's had will be something that he will learn from. You know, when he's on a card, will he get booked walking back to the halfway line, complaining about a penalty that's already been given? You'd like to think not because what's the point? Will he get booked for flying into a tackle on the halfway line when he's literally just been like in a confrontation with the ref? Again, it's about being a bit bit savvy. And it, I thought it was interesting that the assistant manager um, gave that sort of message out in his interview yeah. because yeah. It, it would, as, as many people have said, been very easy for him to go off on a diatribe knowing that if he got a ban, it wasn't exactly the worst thing in the world. And ultimately... You know, we've we've we talked about where the referee is culpable, but you know, read the, read the room, as the phrase goes. If if a referee is not inclined to give you very much and is annoyed with you, then uh, be a bit circumspect for a bit. You know, rec- recognize just as match officials let players cool down if they're doing their jobs well, players if they're doing their jobs well let match official cool down. And uh, ultimately, Gabriel was naive and allowed himself to get sucked into a challenge which was in- never going to be to his van- advantage. And and we were naive defensively f- for both the goals. I mean, anyone that's in a situation where they're letting Bernardo Silva run one on one into the box against Granite Xhaka probably shouldn't be leaving Granite Xhaka in that position. And equally uh, for their winning goal, all right, it was scrappy and lucky. But as Fabregas uh, online tweeted, you don't let Kevin De Bruyne have 30 yards of space to put a ball into the box and then don't drop off. You know, (laughs) in that situation, if he's got the ball in that much space, him specifically, you drop off because you need to make sure that you know, he's the player in the league most likely to put it in the perfect spot at the perfect trajectory. And that was, again, a little naivety from from us there. Um, but we have to be very positive about it because there was a lot of question marks coming into the season. You know, what would happen with the development of Smith Rowe in Saka? Would they kick on? How long would it take them to kick on? Um, they've both kicked on significantly, and particularly in recent weeks in terms of end product. Martinelli, there were question marks not long ago about was he going to come back from injury being the player that we thought he might be when he before he got his injury? You know, what's his position in the squad? Well, he's showing that he's now a better player than he was before he got injured. Now he's going to say he's fully back up to speed. Uh, you doing the same things with a slightly more game intelligence. You know, with, a, with a, a little more good fortune yesterday, he could have had a hat-trick. 
Um, and, and that's something that people don't often get to say against Manchester City. And, and you, you can run through the whole team. No, and I think also you look at... Sorry, it keeps dropping out and I think you finished. <laughs> I had. You could, that's probably why then. Um, yeah, and I think you can also look at the growth of the team as a whole because uh, both both sort of mentality-wise and structure-wise because we've now played Man City twice this season and both times we've gone down to 10 men, admittedly at slightly different stages of the game. But when we went down to 10 men with when Xhaka got sent off, we literally just capitulated. We lost... Mayday! Mayday! Yeah, exactly. It was just panic stations. It was and a complete lack of belief that we could get anything from the game at that stage. Whereas we were effective, you know, when Gabriel gets sent up, got sent off, again, we were already level. It wasn't like we had a lead to kick, cling on to. OK, we had slightly less time to defend, but you would think the scars of 5-0 post 10 men would kick in and really cause us problems when the reality was... The team stepped up and we didn't just step up and just be defensive, although there was a degree of that. I thought we were really brave throughout the game. Um, you know, we were prepared to have a go. We were prepared to take people on, put the ball in difficult places and ask questions of them. And I think that's been our biggest criticism sometimes of our Teta teams is it's like, well, yeah, they are a bit more defensively solid, but that's because they're doing nothing at the other end or, you know, relying on set pieces or a solitary goal or blah, 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 blah. And that wasn't the performance we saw. It wasn't like, you know, the the famous 2-0 against City where we literally just took them apart on the counter twice. Hmm. I think that was the last time we beat them, incidentally. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't the game we watched yesterday. That was a game where we controlled spells of the game. We put them under pressure. We stopped them playing for large spells of the game. And actually, we looked the more dangerous side. We had the better chances. Um, we had the better moves, even the ones that didn't end in chances. And, you know, Paul asked the question, did you think they were going to score? And honestly... Obviously, I wouldn't put my house on it. But at the time, I was sitting there thinking, right now, they haven't asked a question of us. I said to my dad at the time, if they go on and win this game by being this patient, then, you know, ultimately it will look like a good call. But actually, if this was Liverpool, they'd have ta- they'd probably have put two, three goals past us by now because they'd have played quickly on the counterattack instead of just pass, pass, pass. Because we were committing men forward. You know, Kieran Tierney was still going down the line trying to pick out balls into the box. And I think that, you know, to a certain extent... I think extent, as well really what it highlights is uh, the quality of the summer recruitment because when you think back to the 5-0, that was... Um, Kalasnach. I mean, I mean, yeah, Kalasnach exactly. played and Cedric Suarez <laughs> by the side of a defence. Um, but weak. then, like, whereas <laughs> we went out and we spent the money on Ramsdale, you, you and I had doubts <laughs> about that one, but it's turned out to be an absolute stroke of genius. Tommy Assey's come in and... You know, he's the best to me. He's the best right back we've had at the club since Bakary Sanya. Um, you know, is Ben White? You know, the way he won the ball for the, for our first goal yesterday, for our goal <laughs> yesterday. Um, all these players that were signed in the summer have come in and they've looked the part. And being able to have what, in a way, is it a surprise that we're we're better than we were? five months ago I, no but sometimes you have to put the new glasses course, on to course. see and, don't you, know, you as i've said you know I, everyone that listens to this podcast knows I, i've i've definitely been a bit wobbly when it comes to what arteta's been doing but i i don't see how any arsenal fan <laughs> other than my uncle could look at yesterday's performance and not feel optimistic 100%. about the future I, 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 
Well, just on that, I wanted to touch on, but just building on what Paul had talked about earlier is, you know, mentioned some of the individual performances specifically yesterday. And we have to say that we're definitely seeing that having Granite Jack in the team makes Thomas Party Thomas Party. Um, you know, also him being fully fit, of course, just in time for the AFCON, sadly for us. Um, but his performance against Man City, I thought was the closest we've come to seeing a Patrick Vieira style midfield performance since Patrick Vieira. <laughs> um, and uh, obviously we haven't seen that anything like that consistently from party, but it is uh, interesting that, you know, it, it's been his three best performances for the club have probably been in three very, very big games. Um, and it's all about, I suppose, keeping him fit and keeping a consistency of selection. He looks confident. He did look confident, yes. He was uh, taking players on, he was doing nutmegs and trying to play progressively, and that's something we haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. He he clearly feels better when Xhaka's there. Um, but one of the things I wanted to touch on also specifically was, because Paul had mentioned new signing, was, was Tommy Asu, who uh, won 100% of his duels against Raheem Sterling who, let's not forget, is one of the most dangerous players of the ball on his feet in, in the league. And being so such a low centre of gravity and so quick is incredibly difficult to challenge. And Tommy Asu, half fit, back from COVID as well, uh, didn't give him a kick. And that's uh, actually extraordinary. That, that there are very few times that that's happened in Raheem Sterling's professional career, <laughs> that he's been totally, totally nullified in every aspect of the game, as he was by Tommy Asu. Um, and as someone that was, you know, <laughs> randomly had an awareness of the player, not for any great virtue of myself, but uh, was sort of optimistic when we signed him, I have to say he's surpassed every expectation I could have had and obviously makes that Sky Sports bloke who was on, on claiming to be in touch with the agents who didn't know, who were saying that Tommy Asu wasn't a right back, look like the massive prick that he is. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to get your thoughts on those two players. <laughs> I think with um, Tommy Asu, what was really interesting yesterday was I didn't actually think he started the game particularly well. I thought in the first five minutes, he looked like he was having problems with Sterling. But he's clearly someone who thinks very deeply, both during and obviously outside of matches as well, because he made small tweaks to his game that made a big difference. Um Early on, there were a lot of like little touches, little little moves that it felt like Sterling was going to get behind him, get around him, um, and be played in as well in behind him. And um, he got much much tighter to Ben White. He got tighter to Sterling, put the press on him much quicker when he was receiving the ball to reduce the chance of him being turned. Um, and those small changes made a big difference. And second half, you know, Sterling wasn't in the game. Well, did you did you see the interview that he um, he did an, an interview which where he talked about? I, th I can't remember the exact context, but it was something like about how um, there haven't been that many passes from Ben White to him during a game. And he was saying he did you you know because he has played centre back. Um, it you know it's something they've talked about because as a fullback he shouldn't be the ball unless there's literally nothing else on, because it's it's a ball that puts pressure on and doesn't actually help the team move forward. And yeah. I just thought it was a really good insight into the level of depth and tactics that they're talking about, about how they build the play and also how they build understanding with each other. You know, they're not just thinking about their own position, they're thinking about the impact that has on other people on the pitch as well. And, and as you were both alluded to, that, you know, it's showing the change in mindset. There is the intention to play forward is now starting to embed in the team rather than just coming from the manager's lips. And that's partly the change of personnel. People are more technically capable in certain positions. And of course, it all starts with the defence um, because we've, we've got players that can pass off both feet, which is something we haven't seen for a while at the club. Um, 
but it's and the Ben ball, Ben White ball over the top for Saka that worked so beautifully all game. But beyond that, you know, we've we've got much more two footedness in the team. I, I noticed it. I mean, less so yesterday, but against Norwich City, you know, Granit Xhaka was going, oh, I've got a right foot. And actually, it's it's really quite good when I use it. <laughs> um, and there's this definite <laughs> focus, but there is this definite focus throughout the team of trying to take more two-footed options, which is fantastic because that just opens up more angles. It keeps the opposition guessing. And we all saw... For, for, it know, allows more first-time passing as well. And we saw it that glorious period where we had, had Santi Cazorla running the midfield... If you've got players that can, either, I mean, he could go both ways as well, but if you've got players that can play the ball with either foot, the opposition cannot close you down as effectively because either they do and overcommit and you can work around them or they are wary and they stand off. Um, and, and you can see in the recruitment that the club's done, they've been trying to pursue more players who are able to do things with, with either foot as well. And, and again, it's just, it's illustrative of the fact there is a greater cohesion to what's been happening in the decision-making at the club than than any of us could see from the outside. Uh, that's you know, not to say that the problems are fixed. You know, We're going to have the great striker hunt at some stage in the summer, and Christ knows what happened between now and then in that position. But Yeah, uh, if any of you seen that, Eddie Nketiah is in talks with Bayer Leverkusen. Yeah, that's that's what the press are saying. And it wasn't in the squad yesterday, I noticed. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's what that's what the word on the street is, and um, that's hardly surprising. His contract runs out, and he's had bugger all football. You know, he's played like three league cup games and had a couple of minutes here and there. I mean, in his position, as things stand, why the hell would you stay? And it's up to the club to say, okay, well, with no Ober here, you're going to get games. Uh, particularly, you know, as the season goes on, and then we'll see where you're at. I mean, if if Inketi is clever, he'll just keep all his options open, won't sign with anyone until the end of the season, and just see what what's on the table, because it's not like he's going to get worse offers if he has another few months of not playing all that as much as he'd like to. Particularly given he's undoubtedly going to play more than he has up to this point in time. So you know, I imagine what decision he makes will be largely influenced by what game time he gets. At Arsenal, because of course, if he was desperate to leave, he would have gone and signed for Crystal Palace last summer rather than deciding not to. <laughs> um, so, I mean, while we're sort of getting carried away on this wave of positivity, particularly with a two legged semi final, FA Cup, and uh, a, a rather tense game up at Shite Hart Lane on the horizon, I mean, do you guys have any thoughts? And I suppose there's not really that much to say, but any thoughts on the on the striker situation, you know, Lacazette seems to be nailed on in every aspect at the moment, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Obviously, his contract runs at the end of the season. And what the hell is going to happen with Aubameyang? Will he play for us again? Is it is it an old different reason? We have we don't have enough information to really know what's going on there. Uh, we know that Newcastle apparently have put in a bid to take him on. My load. guess is they're just they're letting it slide into Afcon. Yeah. Well, that, that does seem to be the case, but what's going to happen after that? Say, so in the absence of knowledge, uh, what's your instincts about how it's going to play out? I mean, it looks from what I've read that he might have played his last game for us, which I think is um, it's a pretty shuddering and sudden, sudden fall from grace for the guy. Um, I think, like, for me personally, someone that's always I'm quite... I try not to get too emotionally invested in players. I, I quite like him. But I, th- I think he's been basically up until this last sort of year, he's been a very positive thing for Arsenal. Um, but um, I think, as I said on the podcast last week or two weeks ago, you know, this problem's come up and Martinelli's come into the team and 
Martinelli gives you work rate. He gives you balance on the left-hand side of that attack. He he can run like Billio and he can finish, unfortunately. But the finishing boots weren't, weren't quite there yesterday. But it's, it does feel to me... I'm not saying that if Fulber stays, we would need him. I'm not writing him off personally, but I think that Arsenal might have. I'll put it this way. Um, if Newcastle came and... in, I wouldn't be turning down a massive sum of money for him. Well, I guess that's what that's what I'm talking about. Is I kind of feel it, it's amazing to me to think that if Newcastle came in and offered us money to take him, that we would take that. And most Arsenal fans would say, yeah, that's, that's the right thing to do. Maybe it kind of makes sense. I mean, he's what he's got a year left on his contract. He's 32, 33 coming up, I think. So maybe it was always going to end in this way. Maybe I I don't want to say Arteta had a plan about it. I mean, it's pretty, pretty cynical. Um, Particularly when the guys was the club captain. Um, But it's difficult to see a way back for him at the moment. Um, I think the thing is, if you're Arteta and you don't actually don't see him as the future of the team, you almost needed something like this to happen because ultimately Arteta wasn't the one who appointed him, was he? I think he was never appointment to captaincy. Yeah. After yes. the Jacques meltdown. So you're in a bit of a sticky situation. He's your, He's been made captain. He's basically carried the team on his back for a season and a half. You know, what else are you going to do? You can't, there's no plausible reason to take it off him. But actually you can see instantly once he's been out of the team, that's really been the moment of breakthrough for the new sort of culture. And I think we're all in agreement here that whatever we think of Arteta in terms of a long-term manager, and I think the jury is still out on that precisely because we haven't ever seen him be manager of a club when he's experienced and that club has been sort of moulded to him. But I think we're all in agreement that for the here and now and what Arsenal Football Club needs right now, he's the right man for the job because he's rebuilt that culture. He's rebuilt the team and he's given us something to get excited about again. Whether he can take the step forward is another question. Um, But if he is the man for the here and now, then and part of the what the work he's done to make this all come together is that sort of atmosphere and that strategy of non-negotiables that that mutual respects that turning up on time all those sort of things and the rules are being slightly bent for over then maybe it was the the necessary thing for us to take this next step forward um you know to give martinelli minutes for example i agree it's it's sad because he's been he's been a good servant for the club he's been an important player for us at some difficult times but ultimately you can st- it's a bit like us when Arsene Wenger left you know there was a lot of fondness there but it didn't necessarily for many people make it the wrong move for yeah the I, I kind of agree with that and also I think it could easily have gone another way Martinelli could have come into the team <laughs> and not performed as yeah. he has um, but he has come in he's he's taken his chance and I think when you've got someone playing the way Martinelli is playing it's very difficult then to um, go back and we've seen this season um you know, for all that I think Lacazette is not a much, I would like more of a penalty box presence from him. We are a better team with Lacazette playing centre forward than we are with Uber there. So that decision kind of makes itself. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll be sad to see him go. But like you say, Helen, I, I can completely understand it's it's the right thing for the football club at this time. Um, you mentioned Arsene Wenger. I've got a question to ask you both later on. 
on him. <laughs> well, uh, we'll get well, to that. Yeah, we'll get to it shortly. I mean, all I was going to say is on the Ober issue is it's there's a couple of things of information really, which is firstly it's instructive that despite the fact he's been absolutely key to most of our best specific moments at his time at the club. Our win record without him is better than our win record with him uh, over his whole duration, let alone since his form has dropped off. And uh, on top of that, well, there's been a few kind of you know interviews with players at the club over the last two or three weeks. Uh, and of course, they've been asked about the situation over and none of them have deviated from the party line at all. You had, I mean, Grant Jacker was gave an interview recently where he was t- and talking about, you know, they be best friends with the fans, but at least there's a mutual, there's a sort of mutual respect now type thing. And it was all asked about captaincy, and you know, he was he was banging the lacquer drum, and 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 specifically chose to make the comment about Lacazette always being having exemplary timekeeping and being a, a total professional and uh and, and then ben white was interviewed and was you know asked about the other situation he's basically going yeah he's a really good player we hope he comes back for us we all love him you know it, it is what it is they're not stupid though are they matthew like who there's a but there's a difference between who's going to outlast each other arteta or over and yeah, right now we can see which way the, the money's but, pointing but, but there's also a difference between saying nothing and saying something because they could, they could, they could not rock the boat by saying nothing, but they've chosen to say something, which, which tells you essentially some of the players at least very much agree with the decision that's been made about about removing him from the captaincy and that something needed to be done, which suggests that the problems about punctuality and stuff behind the scenes may have been even worse than we've been led to believe. On on, on top of that, it's also possibly a recognition of the fact that he's got a waning influence on the team. Players aren't stupid. They, they can see everything that we can. And so, as exactly as you're saying, the stars appear to be aligning on that one. And the question is basically going to be, is it going to be now or is it going to be the end of the season? And what's and what which of those outcomes is most useful for Arsenal Football Club? Um, the great irony being, of course, that if if we'd been able to, if Nketiah had decided to go to Crystal Palace or Lacazette had, had got an offer, we probably would have bought Tammy Abraham in the summer who desperately wanted to come to us and we, we were kind of trying to get bring into the club um, and it hasn't happened. And uh, it's going to be really, really interesting to see what decisions the club makes about the striker position, well, between now and the end of the season, but particularly over the summer. because so that will tell us a huge amount yeah. about about the direction that Arteta wants, you know, is this Lacazette false nine thing? Is that is that what he wants, or is that him making the best use of what of the tools at his disposal? And we don't know that yet. Well, it almost doesn't matter, does it? It almost doesn't matter what he wants in the sense that if Oba leaves, well, you know, if you've got Oba and Enketia possibly or likely to leave in the summer, plus Lacazette out of contract in the summer, you've got a real problem there where we've got no strikers effectively signed up to us for next season. Um, and that that is was a point I was going to make when Paul was talking about you know Lacquer and the importance he's but he's had for us. I think he's been a, he's been really really important for us in the context of you know a disgraced captaincy. We needed someone to be beyond reproach, and he has led from the front in every aspect. You know he he does some off the ball stuff as well. Like Saka's goal, if yeah. you watch the replay, Lacazette cuts across him and blocks Ake so he can't make the challenge, which engineers the chance for for Saka. And sometimes those kind of um, those off the ball, those unselfish acts on the pitch, they don't get the credit they deserve, but they're still important. Um, and I think he's he's been phenomenal for us. 
Um, my big concern is how many, you know, when he starts, I mean, the reason I know Enketia wasn't on the bench was because when I saw Lacazette was starting, my first instinct is to check the bench to see who can come on for him after about 65, 70 minutes because he's going to be shattered. Um, and without Enketia there, I was thinking, blimey, what are we going to do like later in this game? And ultimately, obviously, he, um, he played almost the full 90. Um, we ended up putting Martinelli up there instead. But that introduces a real problem for us because he's now played, I don't know how many games on the bounce, but several games on the bounce. And is he going to be able to play, particularly when we get into January and we've got cup competitions and we're playing Sunday, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday type thing. We're looking a bit skinny on squad depth here. And mm. if you look at I, the the season, Leicester won the league. I think something like 10 of their 11 starting 11 played 35 games or more of the Premier League season which yeah. is absolutely phenomenal. It's not dissimilar, actually, to what the Invincibles did. You know, the lineup was pretty, pretty steady and um, secure throughout the season. And that's brought some of the rewards that we're seeing in terms of team performance and cohesion. But it does introduce a risk where, particularly a player of lack of age and fitness, if there was a problem, the drop-off we could see if he was unavailable for whatever reason or unable to be rotated and therefore might cause an issue is quite startling actually it's something that if we are going to see Enketia what well, if if believe in this channel, I think we have to send someone yeah I mean the, the rumours on that front you know apparently there's some story going around that uh, Newcastle have offered us uh, to take him on loan to the end of the season with an with a with a option option to buy for 20 million it's like why the hell would we do that why the hell would we keep the richest team in the world are going to be massive rivals coming up in the Premier League and then give them the option of maybe buying the player that is going to be a problem for us if they can't get anyone better like <laughs> go fuck yourselves you know that's some straight up fucking Serie A bullshit but on top of that it, it's the, it's the fact that we don't have any other option who can play the Lacazette role and you know, Lacazette, quite apart from fitness, he, he might not stay in form for the rest of the season. Um, you know, cast your minds back to just three or four weeks ago when we were sh- we got turned over at Goodison Park and Lacazette put in an absolute stinker in that game. I mean, that was as bad as a performance I've seen from an Arsenal striker in a long time. And it just so happens that he's completely turned it around straight off the back of that. Um but we can't we can't assume that he's going to maintain this level of fitness and form and, and, until the end of the season. So something needs to be done, um, which is why it's kind of very interesting to see what's going to happen with the Aubameyang situation. You know, will 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 fences be mended? Will he be shoved out the door? Does he want to leave uh, rather than rather than it, maybe, is it a case of you know that's why he's not playing because actually he's thrown his toys out the pram and doesn't want to be here since he's been stripped of the captaincy? We we don't know. We just don't know. So. Again, we'll learn a lot when we find out what incomings there are. I mean, we're not going to make a, a big splash for a striker in, in this transfer window because you're not going to get the players you might want. But maybe there's something to be done a, a bit like we did with Erdegaard last season and, and the, the rumours linking us to getting Luka Jovic on loan won't die. Um, and that that makes an abs- absolutely bang on sense for Arsenal. You know, not Jovic is a player we've had our eye on for a long time, right since he was about 16, I remember. Um, he's a player that did brilliantly and then has lost his way a bit. He can't get any games at a, a super club um, and would be a low risk situation for us to try and bring in and see if there's any, see if there's something there. And and let's face it, can't do any worse for us than Denis Suarez did. That gives <laughs> what, us- 
kind of bar is that you're setting, Matthew? <laughs> yeah, but from the, from, from, from the perspective of is it worth a punt? <laughs> That's the bar I'm setting. Is it worth a punt? And, no, I know, I know, I know. And I would say it is worth a punt. Um, it's really, uh, I, I, I think it's a bit weird um, that Enketia clearly there is an opportunity for him to stay at Arsenal and get games. Um, you know, whatever happens with Aubameyang in the immediate future, we know that he's not long for this football club in a more general sense. The same is true of Lacazette. There, there, there's, there is an opportunity for him to... Because Balogun's not ready either. Balogun needs to go out on loan. So if you were in Ketia's agent, I mean, I get that he can go and sign a contract and maybe earn more money somewhere else. But, you know, you've got a potential opportunity to be centre forward for Arsenal. Why would you leave? Oh, that's why I was saying that I suspect Nketiah will chat to lots of people, his agent, and then will not make any agreements with anyone until the season's end where he will review his situation. If his agent doesn't do that, his agent is not mm. doing his job for the player because ultimately there's a lot of different ways this could play out, Freddie, and, and uh, none of which see him in a less advantageous situation than now other than if he gets a serious injury. Um, so I... I presume that's what will happen is that, you know, we'll we'll get news about whether he's staying or whether he's going finally confirmed sometime around May or June. Um, that's what I just assume. But um, Well, unless Ober goes sooner. Because again, if Ober goes in January, perhaps that does tip the hand on Eddie. Well, I don't know how I feel about that, but, you know. Okay, well, um, I mean, this is going to be an epic anyway, even without, even with my editing. So just, just to let us finish off, and you, Paul, you wanted to bring up a Wenger issue. Oh yeah, um, I, I was just wondering: Have either of you seen no, the Invincible film? No, I want to watch it. Phil keeps in rank. Not as yet, no. As as you know, he wasn't exactly my favourite person on the planet by the time he departed. But um, what a wonderful, wonderful film it is. Better um, than the book, then. It just. Oh, it, <laughs> that's I, the only reason I, I haven't to, watched it because the book was so well, bad. Well, I think the, the thing is, obviously, the film's been made by a couple of people and there are other voices yeah. in it. So you've got David Dean, you've got, there's, um, I took a photo of it, um, Patrick Vieira reminiscing about mm-hmm. winning the league at White Hart Lane. And there was almost more insight in the look on his face than you got in the entirety of the Wenger book. <laughs> <laughs> De- Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry. No wonder Phil doesn't want to watch um, it, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> It just um, so it, it basically covered those kind of skims through the life outside of Arsenal. Uh, the main focus of the film is Arsenal, and particularly, obviously, the the invincible season. Um, but yeah, just a really, really great watch. And I, uh, I I came away from it at the end a little bit teary eyed, which um, <laughs> I was I was a little bit surprised by myself actually. Um, yeah, no, honestly, I mean, I know how much you loved him, Helen, particularly. Um, so, well, well, well Next worth time. a watch. Um, also, just on another note, I saw, you might have seen this already, Ian Wright doing Gary Neville's soccer box. And um, he was talking about how he, when he realised that Arsenal were going to let him go, <laughs> he went out to Paris to meet David Dean and uh, Arsene. And he said, oh, I went out there for love. And then, do you know what it was like? It was like the scene in Goodfellas when Joe Pesci thinks he's going to get made and then they kill him. Um, <laughs> which was, uh, was just quite funny, the way the way he said it. But he also said something which was quite interesting about Paul Merson. He said, he, um, where, he, 
you go to a big club from a club like Palace and then you look around and you see the level that you're at now, the player that made him realise that he was at a higher level was the Merce, which I just yeah, thought yeah. was quite interesting. Well, imagine how good Merson would have been if his professionalism across the board had matched his, his had, had been that of a modern player. Uh, as you could say, for a lot of players from that era, you know, imagine if Letizia had got into sports science. And some from this era, I'd add, Matthew. Well, true, true. <laughs> okay, well, I, th- I think... We've had a fair few players come back from well, the summer break with a beer belly. Well, yes. Uh, and, and, and some like Danny Rose never lose it. Um yeah, I, th- I think that'll do us for this one because otherwise we're going to be getting into the super epic uh, mode and this is also already going to be a beast for me to edit with the internet connections and everything. But uh, just to say, obviously, we've got a the League Cup uh, semi-final first leg against Liverpool on the horizon. I guess we're all hoping that the combination of AFCON, COVID and they're generally not taking the tournament that seriously will mean that they'll rotate hugely, which means that when we rotate, we're not going to lose as a result. Um, and we got Forrest obviously at the weekend in the FA Cup uh, before uh, the second against Liverpool. I guess, I guess we're all expecting to see lots of rotations. Um, any any feelings about how they, that's going to go? It's a pretty bad game for Gabriel to be missing, isn't it? Or is he missing it? I don't know. Does it does it carry to the League Cup? Yeah, he misses the first leg of the League Cup semi final. Or is it going to the FA Cup these days? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have. Slow Rod Rob Holding against well, it, it depends who Liverpool feel, um, doesn't it? If Mane's yeah. got COVID and Salah's at Afcon and yada yada. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Slow Rob Holding, but with magnificent <laughs> hair now. <laughs> it's almost like a free hit, I think, which is a weird thing to say against about a semi final against Liverpool. But um, Liverpool will rotate, Matt, probably more than we will, I think. And then I think we'll probably go for the big rotation, maybe yeah, agreed. at Forest. Agreed. Yeah, I'm just glad we've got Liverpool, not Spurs. Yeah, I always feel sick when we play Spurs, particularly in like a cup competition. No, no, no. we get to play them when they've just played Chelsea twice. Yeah, no so. one wants to play Spurs three times in a month. You'll never wash that that off. All the hand sanitizer in the world won't make three playing Spurs three times in a month go away. No, filthy, filthy. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think it's time to knock this on the head, but I hope, listeners, that despite uh, us uh, talking at length about certain subjects, uh, that it will be enjoyable. Yeah, thanks for, for indulging you. my therapy there. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of it might <clears throat> might not make the final edit, but <laughs> that goes for me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I hope, listeners, that you've enjoyed it um, and uh, that it's been cathartic. And, and optimistic for yourselves and uh, that obviously I hope that you're all staying well and safe and uh, that we have a lovely week and the next time we speak to each other we've won two games at home and can feel yeah feel a little bit happier about life although we're relatively happy anyway I think or at least optimistic let's yeah let's turn the optimism into happiness that's what I'm saying there are words I will find them at some stage um, but yes uh, thanks again to Helen. You're welcome. And thanks again to Paul. Thank you for having me, Matthew. And uh, lovely <laughs> to speak to you both. Happy New Year and right. um, forward Arsenal, I say. Indeed. Pleasure as always. Well, take care, everyone. Have a lovely week. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.